Uh, it is so great to be with you again this morning. If you were here with us last Sunday, recall that we began uh, chapter three of Habakkuk with a call to remember the work of God. Uh, that if we ponder more of God's work in scripture as well as in our own lives, it will stir within us a greater fear or awe of God. Well, this morning, uh, Habakkuk continues his prayer to God and uh, he moves from remembering the work of God to now seeing and proclaiming God's greatness in that work. In other words, God's work reveals more of God's greatness to us. Say that again. God's work reveals more of God's greatness. I'm excited. Let's dive in here. Habakkuk uh, chapter three for context. Uh, we're gonna pick up here in verse one. We're gonna read through verse 15 together. Verse one says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigenot. O Lord, I, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now God came from Timon and the, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand and there, there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The, the raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and, and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Salah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a, a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So uh, earlier this summer, uh, my family and I had the privilege of uh, taking a, a beach vacation. And uh, uh, one of those days, we went out kind of far um, into the ocean. There was a sandbar out there. And uh, we were observing this crane that had caught a, a small stingray uh, and was eating it. And, and that in and of itself was kind of an amazing sight. But all of a sudden, literally three feet in front of us, this dorsal fin popped out of the water. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think, I hope I said something like shark. <laughs> I'm not real sure. It might've been more like, ah, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and, and, and there was just bedlam after that. I mean, you've never seen uh, five people move so quickly. Uh, my wife, Jen, drops her phone in the ocean because she practically was throwing our, one of our daughters back onto the sandbar. Um, our oldest daughter was, um, I think, moving so quickly at this point that she was actually running on top of the water. <laughs> And as for me, I had grabbed our, our youngest uh, daughter uh, by the life vest and I was holding her up as high as I could, <laughs> as if that was going to do any good when the shark ate me. <laughs> there was both this fear and amazement, this, this terror and this awe all wrapped in one. And once we'd made it to safety and we're in our right minds again, um, we just couldn't wait to start sharing it and, and telling people about the day that we almost got bitten and eaten by a shark that was this big. <laughs> uh, my point is, is when we encounter amazing things in life, uh, it excites us and awes us and gives us a desire to, to share it uh, with others. And I th I'm sure you've probably experienced something uh, similar in your life as well. Well, when we read passages like chapter three about God's glory and greatness, it should have an even greater impact on us. And Habakkuk has just remembered the past work of God in verse two, which we covered last week. And now he sees the God's greatness in this prophetic vision, and of course, under divine inspiration, describes it to us here. This is a massive passage from verses 3 through 15. Theologians call this a, a theophany. Theophanies are, are places in scripture where God manifests his glory and greatness so greatly that it brings awe, adoration, and even terror all wrapped in one. In fact, some uh, commentators believe that this passage is the most extensive and elaborate theophany in the entire Old Testament. So my hope and prayer for us this morning is that we'll see this greatness here in this text, experience it, and then go tell people about it. So as we enter in here, we're going to cover verses 3 through 15. We're going to zoom in on those and kind of uh, bite off uh, verse by verse here through, through that section. As we do so, let's also Look and see God's greatness in his works, okay? With me? All right. Uh, let's pick back up here in verse 3 of Habakkuk uh, chapter 3. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands and there, there he veiled his power. So Timon and uh, Mount Paran uh, were located somewhere south of Israel. We don't actually know the actual location of that. But the idea here is that God is, is sweeping in from the south like an invading army. And by the way, in these verses and the ones after, it's depicting God as being on the move. God's not stationary. God is active in his creation. He, he's carrying out his predetermined will. God's not passively sitting back on the throne in heaven with a bag of popcorn. Oh, plot twist. No, God sees everything, God knows everything, and God is active in all things. 
And I think that should comfort us here uh, because it means that even if we can't exactly see what God is up to in our lives or the lives around us or even in our world today, we can know that he is, in fact, doing something great and marvelous, so much so that we should wonder in amazement. In fact, didn't God tell Habakkuk that in chapter one that we covered earlier this month? It says here in the text too that he, he's full of, of splendor and majesty. He's describing a king. In fact, the king. God is, is the creator king of the universe. It says that the whole earth is full of his praise and glory. His, his brightness is like the light. Rays of light just emanate and ooze from him. See, there is no darkness in God whatsoever. Not in the least. It's only the brilliance of light shining and pulsating from God. God is radiant. And you're like, what's the name of your church, Chris? Yeah, it's the name of our church. I mean, the first word in the name of our church, right there, is a conversation starter. Because God is radiant. God's brilliant. What's interesting too here is at the end of verse four, the very last line, it says, and there he veiled his power. He veiled his power. God's power is so mighty that he, he covers it. See, he doesn't unleash the full magnitude of his strength because no one and nothing could withstand it. Yes, God is that powerful beyond imagination. He dwells in, in uh, unapproachable lights. In fact, it, it, scripture says that, that God is a consuming fire. Think about that light. And if he didn't veil it, he would just consume us. Now watch as, as Habakkuk continues here in this vision here in verses five through seven. Uh, it says, before him, before God, went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the, the tents of Kushan and affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian uh, did tremble. So in scripture, uh, pestilence and plague are often associated with God's discipline or judgment on sin. And so the picture here that we get in these verses is, is, is of God bringing judgment to the nations. See, God is just. We saw that a little bit last uh, Sunday, but even more so do we see it here in this text. We see this uh, type of, of, of judgment and justice in the form of plague and pestilence in other places in the Old Testament. For example, the 10 plagues in Egypt. God judged the Egyptians for their enslavement of his people Israel. We also see this um, a few times in Israel itself, where, where uh, they're in the wilderness and they rebel against God. Several times God disciplines them by bringing plague and pestilence to bring them back to him. We also see this later on in Israel's history with King David. He decides that he's going to go uh, do this census to, to see how powerful and magnificent he truly is. And God's like, oh, no, 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 no. Pick your poison. You have three options for consequences. And David chose plague and pestilence. God disciplined him 
and the nation of Israel for that. Furthermore, it says here in our text that uh, God stands and he measures the earth. Uh, Maybe this means he measured the wickedness of the earth. But make no mistake, this is a poetic way of saying that God readied himself for battle. And he took note of everything that was going on on the earth. Uh, You know the the look that... uh, we used to get from our parents as kids when we were cutting up. <laughs> it's that look that says, uh, hey, uh, you, you better cut that out or uh, we're about to have a come to Jesus meeting and you're going to have an opportunity to rethink your life. <laughs> never happened to me, only my sister. <laughs> I never really understood what, what the look was until I became a parent. I've actually come to believe that uh, when we become parents, the look becomes our spiritual gift. (laughs) Sorry, children. (laughs) God's divine gaze of judgment shook the nations to their core. And it says he, he scatters and destroys the mountains of old. He flattens the hills. Mountains and hills were symbols of permanence. They were created when, uh, from the beginning of time when God created them. And the point is, is only God is truly everlasting. He's everlasting. Nothing, not even the mountains can outlast or stand toe to toe with God. And see here in, in seven, uh, verse seven, Habakkuk sees that Kushan, um, which is probably a, a city, we don't know for sure, uh, and Midian, which was a nation that was in south of Israel. Again, uh, they were, uh, this idea is God swooping in, invading, and the nations are seeing it, the cities are seeing it, and they are trembling and they are afflicted before an almighty God. So God has, has stood and measured the earth and the mountains are destroyed, the hills are leveled, and cities and nations are trembling in the coming of God. Can you imagine the implications this has for God's enemies today? I mean, no wicked nation or evil person today is too big or too powerful for God. And I hope that's an encouragement because uh, sometimes like Habakkuk lamented in chapters uh, one and two, it just seems like wickedness prevails in our day, doesn't it? But let's not rule out the possibility that even right now, God is standing and measuring the wickedness of the nations. Let's pick up here in uh, verses eight and nine. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses uh, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, uh, calling for many arrows, Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The imagery uh, here is uh, of God riding on a chariot with his bow and arrows in hand, going to battle against the nations, enraged by evil, by their oppressive ways. Habakkuk here is depicting God as a, a warrior king. He's going into battle against the evildoers, against his enemies, and he, he wins salvation for his people. 
and he strikes with such a force that even the earth itself is split open practically by the waters. This is poetry. It's vivid imagery. There's also a word here, salah. You may have it in, in your Bibles. It's actually inspired as, as well. It's in the original Hebrew. We don't really know exactly what it means. It's probably a musical term. Um, I, I mentioned last week in our sermon that, that most likely this prayer, this theophany, was, was a song that was sung in corporate worship in Israel. Um, and so it's, it's thought or believed that there's this salah that's here, and again in verse 13, is a, a note for uh, those worshiping to pause and ponder what we just said. I also find it interesting here that God's riding into battle on a a chariot of salvation. See, I would have thought that uh, it would have been a a chariot of war because that's what God is is doing in these verses and that's what chariots are for. But that isn't how it's described here, is it? See, Habakkuk is calling our attention to the primary purpose of the war. The war is not the end. The war is the means to an end. And the end is this the deliverance of God's people from the clutches of evil, a chariot of salvation. Look here uh, with me again, please, at verses uh, 10 and 11. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted up its hands on high, like, I I surrender. (laughs) The the sun and the, the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. See, God, God is so great here and depicted as so great in this, in this text that even his inanimate objects of creation, like mountains and the sun and the, and the moon, writhe and freeze in terror. God is terrifying. I I am really thankful and grateful that uh, there's places in scripture that depict God as a shepherd who gathers his sheep to himself, who's a shield for them, who protects them, who's a stronghold for them, a rock that they can hide behind. But that's for God's people. For God's enemies, terror, terror. The waters rage and sweep across the face of the earth with, with here which pictures a God sweeping across the battlefield in fury. Total devastation. And all that it takes is seeing God's spear and his arrows flying to invoke fear and terror. The sun and the moon themselves are depicted here as standing still as if to say they're frozen in place. We can personify them and go, Frozen, jaw open. This reminds us of a time in scripture when uh, the sun literally stood still in Israel. In Joshua chapter 10, um, they're fighting against the, the Israelites are fighting against the Canaanites. And it says that God rained massive hailstones down on the Canaanites. And the sun literally stood still the entire day. And it specifically says that God fought for Israel on that day. But here in in this text, it's, it's more metaphor to help us grasp the sheer greatness and terror of our warrior God fighting against his enemies. 
Look here with me at verse 12. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Salah. The, the Lord here marches through the earth in fury. He, he tramples the nations in anger. Why? Because God fights for the salvation of his people. His people are his anointed ones and they're set apart for his purpose and, and pleasure. You see, God is a redeemer. God redeems. He sets us free from captivity. He, he crushes the house of the wicked. He lays them fully bare, which is to say he lays them before him naked and humiliated. Yahweh is an avenger of evil. Can I take a moment and maybe press in a little bit on us? This passage is clear that God is furious toward evil and wickedness, which means as God's people, we don't have to be full of anger and wrath. God has has promised to fully vent his just wrath upon evil for us. Last several years, it's just growing concern of seeing more and more angry anger and hatred and wrath and vitriol all across the world and even in the church on this side of the world can we just be known at radiant on the west side of indy as a people of gentleness and kindness striving if at all possible, to be at peace with all people. That would stand out. That would help us permeate the West Side with the hope of the gospel. And hey, if someday the wicked take our our freedom and plunder our possessions, then can we rejoice like the early church did, and that we were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. God will avenge. He will. And that should just free us to gentleness and kindness with the hope of the gospel to everyone we come into contact with. Let's see how this theophany finishes here in verses 14 and 15. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. The the text is saying here that the Lord uses the weapons of the wicked nations against them. Their arrows that, that were used to kill and enslave others now pierced their own heads. These nations came like a a tornado to scatter and rejoice as they devour those. And now the Lord turns that on them. 
That God uses uh, their own strength and power against them. And then further here, it, says, it finishes in 15, that, that God tramples the sea and conquers it. The sea uh, is often represented as, as wickedness and chaos. Friends, Habakkuk is declaring that God will bring ultimate salvation to his people and final destruction to his enemies. This has only been partially fulfilled. We've, we've seen moments of this in redemptive history. But we have not yet seen the full magnitude of this conquering just yet. That's still to come. And what's so cool is that the salvation that's talked about here in verse uh, 13 also applies to us as well because Jesus came to rescue uh, his people from sin through the cross and resurrection. So through the, the work of Christ, the Bible says that we are now God's anointed. Scripture goes on to say that we've been grafted in, that we've been adopted into the family of God. So the salvation that is, is being talked about here, looking forward, is our salvation. The whole purpose of this prophetic prayer is to remind and encourage us that God will destroy his enemies and rescue his people. It will happen. So let's not allow sin or suffering to overshadow God's majesty and greatness. Let's remember, God is a victor. And if you're here and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then by virtue of the, the grace work that Jesus did on the cross, you too are a victor. God takes the victim, transforms us into victors. Our God is victorious over his enemies. And so are we. They will be conquered and destroyed. We just haven't seen it fully happen yet. As I was studying this passage uh, this week, it, it struck me that this passage points us to Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the, the similarities of, of what God is doing here compared to Jesus' second coming as described in Revelation 19 are amazing. I want to try to help us uh, uh, grasp a little bit more of this greatness and experience a little bit uh, of that this morning, the, the grandness of it. And so uh, picture this. Uh, imagine that as the people of God, we've, we've been given a, a front row seat to the, the, the final battle scene. Oh, by the way, it's a battlefield. It's not quiet. Wars are loud. Battles are, are noisy. And, and God even is often uh, described as, as he manifests his appearance. Uh, there's, there's thunder and lightning and smoke and, and a trumpet sounds. Oh, by the way, we're also told in scripture that when Jesus Christ returns, there's gonna be a trumpet sound as well. I, I just wonder, what's that gonna sound like? Could, could it possibly sound like this? We're on the front lines, we're safe. We hear the trumpet sound. The next thing we see, might it be Jesus Christ in full of his glory, his eyes fire, 
his robe dipped in blood. Tattoos on his thighs that say King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's, he's uh, sitting on a white horse. And behind him and around him are the armies of heaven. And he marches in to battle against Satan and the kings of this earth who are gathered against him. And he tramples the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, utterly destroying his enemies and damning them to eternal hell. And, and the people of God, those who have placed their faith in Christ, those of us on the front lines, roar, amen and hallelujah, right church? Doesn't, doesn't this passage just, just ooze that? Doesn't it just like excite you like, oh my word, that's gonna happen. We will see it one day, friends. If you're in Christ, you will see it. We won't sneer at the enemies, but we will rejoice over God's victory. Thanks be to Jesus Christ. Here's the thing, God is sovereign. God is sovereignly orchestrating all of this to happen, past, present, future. It will happen. How do we know? Because God promises that it will happen and God cannot lie. It means he will always do what he has promised to do. It also means that God is ultimately good. I wonder how many people are here this morning that just need to be reminded God is good. Doesn't that just want to make you see more of God's greatness? <laughs> now, Habakkuk here in this text gives us a glimpse of the greatness and grandness of God at a, at a universal level, a holistic level. But how are we supposed to think about this individually in our context? Because God does not typically display his, his greatness like this here, like we've seen here in chapter three on a daily basis. He has, and he will again. But as I stand here today, I've not seen with my eyes God do what's described here with my, with my own eyes. And I'm, I'm assuming you haven't either. And so how does God display his greatness in our lives today? Is is God displaying greatness in our lives today? Or is he withholding for that final day? No, no, no. You see, sometimes his goodness and sovereignty and power and justice don't look like how we think they should. You see, we think they should always look like how we just saw in this passage. The next time we're driving down the road, somebody cuts us off, God, Habakkuk 3! <laughs> well, let me know how that works out. Because God doesn't often display his greatness in this way. Sometimes too, we, we think that his greatness should uh, always look like peace and ease and comfort and success and rest and healing from illness. And guess what? God does choose to do that sometimes. But more often though, God's victorious greatness looks like suffering and pain discomfort, distress, and even sickness. That's actually what makes God greater than great, though. Because <laughs> he displays his sovereign goodness through our suffering. That is a paradox. So to 
Try to help us see the grandness and greatness of God from this passage as it plays out in our lives today. I think it would be helpful if we could see a a real life example of this kind of greatness displayed in the lives of some families or a family here at our church. This hits close to home because I'm related to them. We're gonna take a a look here at this God work story. And as we do, look for God's greatness in it. Look for his victory. Look for his sovereignty. Look for his goodness in it. And then afterwards, let's sing it. And let's go tell somebody about it this week.